John chapter 8, and then we turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 2. John 8 in the Pew Bible, page 1138, 1138. These readings are taken in connection with what we confess in Lord's Day 1 concerning the only comfort we have in life and in death. So we'll see how these passages connect in the course of the sermon. Verse 31 of John 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are, are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? 
Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. We turn now to Hebrews chapter 2, page 1276, 1276 in the Pew Bible. And we'll read from verse 5 through 18. And this is about the work of the Lord Jesus. Verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So far, I invite you to turn with me in the Book of Praise to page 517, where we have a summary of the Word of God put together by the church forming our confession about the only comfort in life and death, Lord's Day 1. The question reads, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. 
What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? First, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. So far, our confession. <clears throat> In response, we will uh, sing together Lord's Day 1 as put to music in hymn 64, stanzas 1 and 2. Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, we may begin again that familiar cycle of catechism preaching at one of the most famous, if not the most famous, Lord's Day, Lord's Day 1. And Lord's Day 1 is famous for that word comfort, <coughs> and probably also for the word free. Those are pleasant words, even to people outside of the church. They are attractive. Believer or unbeliever, we all like the concept of comfort, and we all insist on being free. No one wants to be in discomfort, and no one wants to be enslaved. And so these key words, they, they resonate in just about every human heart. But what do they really mean? Comfort. Freedom. That's really the trick, so to speak, when looking at Lord's Day 1. What kind of freedom, what kind of comfort are we talking about? Well, we hope to answer those questions as, we, as I bring you this word of the Lord. My only comfort is that Christ has set me free. We'll see three things. I am free from the devil's grip, the devil's threats, and the devil's service. Now, comfort, that word comfort, can mean different things in different settings. If you didn't have, for example, enough heat in your house the last number of weeks, then you likely had many uncomfortable nights shivering in your bed. Or, if you think back to the summer, in the heat of the summer, if you were working outside and bending over all day, the work of landscaping or framing, you probably went home at night looking for the comfort of an easy chair or maybe a swimming pool. That's a very physical kind of comfort. But what the catechism and what the Bible is speaking about when it speaks about comfort is primarily a spiritual kind of comfort. That comfort certainly extends to our bodies, but the key thing is it starts in the soul, starts in the heart. Imagine a person who has had a bad car accident, and in that car accident was knocked unconscious. He wakes up later in a hospital bed, alone in the middle of the night. There's no nurses around at that moment. He's feeling pain. He feels nauseous. He can't feel his legs. And instantly the memory of what took place, the car crash, comes to mind and all kinds of dark thoughts overwhelm him. Fear grips his heart that he's in a very bad shape. 
He feels miserable because of the pain and the, and the sick feeling in his stomach and his foggy brain. He starts thinking that he'll probably never walk again. He's paralyzed, can't feel his legs. He might even die. All of these thoughts are swirling through his head, and at that moment, this particular fellow is in a world of misery, inside and out, spiritually, physically. And now imagine the, the doctor comes in just at that time and starts to explain things to this distressed patient. The doctor says, well, we, we had to freeze you from the waist down in order to repair your broken pelvis. The surgery went well. It looks good. You should be walking in a few weeks. The freezing will be gone in a few hours and you'll be able to feel your legs. You've got a concussion, says the doctor, and lots of scrapes and bruises, but with the proper rehab, you should recover your full health over the coming months. How do you think that patient would feel then? That explanation would bring a tremendous sense of relief, wouldn't it? This man, in that circumstance, in his hospital bed, would be greatly comforted. Even happiness and joy would, would fill his heart, which had moments before been filled with despair. And although at that particular time he's still in pain, and there's still lots of hardship to endure over the coming months, yet now there is light at the end of the tunnel for him. And brothers and sisters, that's what comfort is. Comfort is light at the end of your tunnel. The tunnel of our misery. It's a comfort that is experienced in the spirit, in, in the heart, in the first place, but which will in time spread throughout our whole body, our whole being. The whole person, everything is going to be okay in the end. That's the comfort that floods over us. Comfort is the news, the assurance that one day all the misery we know in this life will be completely gone. And the comfort that Jesus brings us is the news, the assurance that he has set us free from all misery. And when you talk about freedom and being set free, you have to ask, free from what specifically? The Catechism spells it out. Jesus Christ has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from all the power of the devil. That is a profound statement, isn't it? And notice the word all. It's used twice there. All my sins are paid for with the result that all the power of the devil, I'm no longer bound to that power. This is good news, is it not? Who wants to be under the power, under the control of Satan? You see, that's, that's the heart of our comfort as Christians. We are free from Satan's grip. Well, what exactly is Satan's grip? What kind of power does the devil have over us? Well, it turns out, by nature, in our sinfulness, he has quite a bit of power, and it starts with the, the grip he has in our guilt. You know what a guilty conscience is, right? When you do, so, do something wrong in God's eyes, when I do something wrong, and we know it, we know we've done wrong, yet we don't want to admit it. Then we have a guilty conscience, even though we're not doing anything about it. 
At that moment, with your conscience guilty, things are off between you and God. Things are broken. You have offended God, but you're not willing to get rid of your sin, not really. And there you sit, stuck in, in a rut, with this feeling of guilt piling ever higher on your head. And it's not just a feeling of guilt, it's a reality of guilt because you know that God hates sin and God punishes sin. God doesn't wink at sin. And so, because you, you or, or me, we, we don't admit it, we don't repent, we keep on sinning, our guilt piles higher. Well, that is the grip of guilt. That's the power that Satan has. It's Satan who keeps winning when we keep sinning. As long as your guilt before God is a reality, you and I, we are under the grip of sin, and we do the devil's bidding. All the devil wants us to do, all that he lives for, is to foster rebellion against God. And when we're in his grip, that's what we do. It's very much like the time when David sinned with Bathsheba. Adultery. Then he murdered her husband. Then he covered it up with lies and deceit for months and months. During those long months, David was far from God spiritually, languishing under the mountain of his guilt. He was in the drudgery of service to Satan. It was oppressive to him. It was killing him. David writes about that experience in Psalm 32. For when I kept silent, silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I felt like a withered grape, beaten by the sun. That's how I experienced life, because my sin was upon me, unconfessed, and God's hand was against me. When you are faced with your guilt and God is angry with you, at that moment you are in the devil's grip. He's got you right where he wants you. How do you get free from that? You can't undo your sin. You can't erase it. It's a fact, and you can't change how God feels about your sin. You can't change God's judgment. He hates sin. He condemns sin. That's never going to change. You can't make a deal with God either. Like uh, trade him. A whole bunch of good deeds. Lord, I'll, I'll do a whole bunch of good deeds if you cancel out that one sin. It doesn't work that way in God's courtroom. For two reasons. First, every good deed that you and I do still has sin in it. And so even if we were to try and put good deeds before the Lord, there's still sin mounted up in there. We just add to our guilt. And second, the judgment of God demands that sin be paid for with death. As Paul writes in Romans 6, death is the wages of sin, the result of sin. So we owe God those two things. Perfect obedience and death. This is how and why the devil has such a hold on sinners. Sinners like you and me 
utterly helpless against our guilt. Satan doesn't actually have to do anything but sit back and watch us squirm in our misery. Sit back and watch our sins pile up higher to heaven and add to his own kingdom of darkness. And so the devil, when he sees sinners like us doing what we do, sin, he laughs. He laughs and he laughs while we sinners groan and waste away. He laughs. until Jesus steps forward and announces the gospel. I will set you free. I announce to you what I've done for you. I will get you out of that prison of your guilt. This is what Jesus said in John 8, which we read, If you abide by my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What truth? John told us earlier in the Gospel that the Son was sent from the Father full of grace and truth. That's chapter 1. And later in chapter 14, Jesus declares, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the truth. He's the truth in person. The truth of all of God's earlier promises to send a Savior who would give his life in payment for all the sins of God's people. The good news or the truth of a coming salvation was announced on every page of the Old Testament, like we've been seeing in the Judges. But Jesus is that good news, that truth come to life. And with his life of perfect obedience, together with his suffering and death on the cross as our substitute, Jesus has laid down the full payment the full price for our sin. And do you know what that does to our guilt? Our guilt disappears like a puff of air. Because of Christ, God's judgment is removed from over our heads. Our guilt is, is gone. It's been legally paid for. We stand in favor with our Father. And the devil's grip over us, it's shattered. We are no longer on his side, but we belong body and soul to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we are set free, free from the devil's grip and free also from the devil's threats. That's one of the tactics that the devil uses to hold over sinners the power of, of death. He threatens us with death in various ways. People in general are afraid of dying, aren't they? I think we're seeing that during this pandemic. There's, there's a real fear running throughout our society. It's true also that for some, life can become so miserable that they think it will be a relief to die, and they go so far as to take their own life. That's very sad and distressing. But most people do want to live. And they get quite agitated if there is a threat of dying. And Satan uses that innate fear to tie sinners up in knots, to keep them in the dark and in desperation, and, and he does what he can to knock them down, to knock down even believers in the church. What is it about death that people are afraid of, really? Well, people know. 
Even unbelievers know. Deep inside they know that judgment is coming. And that when they die, that moment or that act is going to take them into the courtroom of God. Now lots of people deny this, atheists and unbelievers. Human beings by their nature, they, they push down that knowledge. But the point is they do know. And we know that they know because Paul says this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Romans 1, verse 18, he says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them, so they are without excuse." People fear death, they fear what's coming when they die because their guilty consciences know that they have rebelled against their Creator. They know there's a Creator and they're going to have to answer to Him one day. That's why the, the devil has such a powerful tool when he threatens death. But what about if you know that your guilt has been taken away? What if you know that in God's courtroom your case has been altered? The sentence has been altered from condemned sinner to innocent child. Well, when that is the reality, you look at death a whole lot differently, don't you? It loses its sting. The devil loses his power of threat. That's what Hebrews is telling us that Jesus did for us in Hebrews 2.14. Since, therefore, the children, children of Abraham, share in flesh and blood, he, Christ, likewise partook of the same things, that is, human nature, that through death Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death, there it is, were subject to lifelong slavery. People who don't know Jesus, people who don't believe in Jesus are afraid of dying and that makes them slaves of Satan. If you are terribly scared of something, the person who controls the thing that you're scared of becomes your master. And Satan from the beginning has been holding the power of death over the heads of sinners. And Satan has all kinds of ways to threaten Sinners like us, he whispers in our ears, if you don't follow my way, my wishes, I will put you to death or someone you love. Wasn't it this kind of fear that made Abraham lie about his wife Sarai, Genesis 12, saying that she was his sister? To avoid becoming sick or dying, to, in other words, become prosperous. How often did the Israelites bow down to the Baals? We've been seeing that in the book of Judges. They went to those gods because they didn't want to become sick. They didn't want to be in the poor house. Out of fear of losing military battles, how many times didn't the kings of Israel sacrifice to other gods, even sacrifice their own sons? Out of fear of dying, the Israelites submitted to slavery in Egypt and later to captivity in Babylon. 
Satan has held death over the heads of humans ever since the fall into sin. But Christ comes forward and says, no more. Death is no longer Satan's sure-fire weapon because Jesus has paid the wages of death for us. Hebrews even says that the devil himself has been destroyed by the death of Jesus. Christ has disarmed Satan. Sin is paid for, guilt is removed, so death is no longer an entry into judgment, an entry into eternal damnation, but death is an entry into eternal life. The judgment took place on Golgotha. For everyone who belongs to that Savior, the Son of God, they pass from the state of death over into the state of life, and the threat of dying it no longer holds that great fear. Christ has set us free from this fear, from this anxiety, so that you and I may live each day in comfort. That's what we're confessing when we say in Lord's Day 1, He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. He takes the fear out of life, you see. Fear is no longer needed. It's not necessary. There's, there's no true requirement for it. Anxiety no longer needs to control our thoughts and feelings, for we truly are no longer in the guilt of our sins no longer under the condemnation of God's wrath, and so we're no longer under the tyranny of the devil. God, who has always been in control, now welcomes you and me as his children because of Christ, and he puts his fatherly hand over our heads to protect us, to guide us, to preserve us as his sons and daughters. That doesn't mean instant and complete healing. It doesn't mean the disappearance of all hardship and difficulty. But it does mean a tremendous sense of relief and a powerful assurance of the future, no matter the current hardship. No matter. Just like the, the fellow in the hospital who at that moment still has his pain and has months ahead of him of, of difficult, strenuous recovery. Yet at that moment and every day thereafter, he takes comfort in the words he heard from the doctor. You will regain your health. You have everlasting life. You will rise again. Why then is there fear of death? It's lost its sting. Death holds no true fear, I said a moment ago. And yet death remains a very, a very hard thing, and we shouldn't diminish its difficulty either. The Bible calls it the last enemy, still an enemy. 
It's the great and painful separator. It separates a person's soul from his body, and it separates friends and family and loved ones from each other. Both of those things hurt a great deal. And many of us here know, many of us in this congregation know the pain of that separation. You know what it is to stand at the graveside and watch the body of someone you love get lowered into that grave. You won't be able in this life to touch them, to hug them, to kiss them. That is awful. It's distressing. It's miserable. It's worth weeping over. But it's not the end. It's not fatal. That's the good news of Jesus Christ, which comforts so deeply. He has set us free from the power of death. Not only is judgment and wrath no longer waiting for us in the grave, but just as surely as Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, so we all who belong to Jesus Christ, we too will rise from the grave. We mourn over a death. And so we should, but we don't give in to fear. The fear drops away and hope fills our hearts. Because the threat of Satan, it's empty. And the promise of the Lord Jesus is full and it's real. Death is a temporary goodbye to the departed. It's even a blessing for the departed because their struggle against sin is over. They never have to do another battle against a sinful inclination again. No. They are at rest. And that's a powerful comfort for us who remain. It's also a powerful incentive for us to press on in the life that Christ gives, a life that's now free from the devil's service. You know, some people don't realize that they are enslaved by the devil, that they are basically errand boys or errand girls for Satan. That's what Jesus is getting at in John 8 when he addresses how the Jews object to Jesus talking about setting them free. They say, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. They say to, to Jesus, listen, don't talk about freedom. We are offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? They, they get on their hind legs about that. They think that because they were born in Abraham's line, they have guaranteed spiritual freedom. We know they're not talking about physical slavery or physical freedom because everyone knew how the Israelites had been slaves under Pharaoh, how they were now, how they had been prisoners under Nebuchadnezzar, and even at this moment they were really subjects of Roman, the Roman emperor. But spiritually, the Jews were heirs of God's covenant. They were children. They are children of God, and so they were truly free, they thought. They didn't need Jesus because they were free, they said. They didn't need Jesus because they were free. That's what a lot of people think today, don't they? Your next-door neighbor who 
doesn't believe, might politely listen to you talk about your faith in Jesus, but a, a lot of the time they don't make any connection to themselves and to their circumstance. They, they think, or they might even say, well, that's nice for you. You go to church and have your faith, but um, it doesn't work for me. I, I don't need a Savior. My life is, is just fine. I'm, I'm free to do what I like. But Jesus challenges the Jews and all unbelievers when he says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to what? A slave to sin. The slave, says Jesus, does not remain in the house forever. The son remains. The Jews thought they were free, but they were practicing sin. A little later, Jesus points out that they were doing the works of their father, the father, the devil. The devil, says Jesus, is a liar who hates the truth. He's a murderer. Well, what is it that these Jews do? They hate the truth that Jesus is speaking. And before too long, they pick up stones to stone him. They were about to murder him if they could. They thought they were free, but they were enslaved to sin nevertheless. That's the condition of people outside of Christ. But it's not your condition or mine, beloved, because we are in Christ by faith. Jesus proclaims, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You will be free from what? From your guilt before God. You'll be free from the devil's threats having to do with death and dying, and you will be free from serving like a minion in the devil's kingdom, free now to serve like royal sons and daughters in God's kingdom. Jesus is your Lord. God is your Father, and so you will want to do, and you will actually start to do the works of your God in heaven. This is exactly what we're confessing in the last part of Lord's Day 1. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. We live for Christ, not for Satan. It's a transformation, not a complete transformation in an instant of time because we know sin still lives in us, but it is a transformation that has started and it grows all our life long. The devil no longer owns us and we no longer claim to own our own lives, but we may confess a new boss. I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's my boss. Meet the new boss. Not at all like the old boss. The Lord Jesus is gracious and loving, righteous and holy, merciful beyond measure. He has changed history and he has changed my life and yours. Working for him is good. Serving Christ Jesus is a blessing. And when he comes back to take us home, 
the good life we have now, the, the life that's comforted because of Him, it will turn into the perfect life that we long for with Jesus and His people. That's the incredible comfort of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.